Welcome, everybody. Uh, this is the end of Series 2 of the Forward Together podcast. Forward Together, as you know, we did 30-odd recordings in the first, the 30-odd episodes in the first series, Paul. We did 18 this time round. This time it was a wee bit different. We chatted, we decided rather than having people answer the same questions, we went to experts and talked to them about what they knew, essentially, so it was a wee bit different. Yeah, it was a different style, and I think it worked very well. Uh, and in fact, of course, in the first series, although we asked four set questions, people regularly went beyond answering, yeah. interpreted the questions in different ways, and we actually had much broader conversations. And really the intention behind the second series is to build on the lessons and the conversations from the first series. Yeah. I should have introduced everybody to start with, and apologies for that. My name's Jared Dean. I work for Hollywell Trust and we do the podcast. Paul, do you want to introduce yourself? Um, yeah, I'm Paul Gosling. Uh, I'm an author, commentator, and uh, been doing a lot of work with Hollywell Trust in the last few years. Yeah, delighted so as well. Siobhan? I'm Siobhan O'Neill. I'm an interim mental health champion for Northern Ireland and a professor of mental health sciences at Ulster University, with a grant going in this afternoon that I need to click send on. <laughs> <laughs> I got an urgent uh, email, so... Um, if you drift off and do some other no, comment... No, no, yeah. <laughs> so that's why I'm slightly distracted just right now. Brilliant. And okay. we're joined on Skype as well by Anne. Anne, who are you? Hi, Jared. Good to be here today. Um, my name is Anne. I'm the director of Pivotal, which is the new independent public policy think tank for Northern Ireland. Delighted that you're part of it as well, and we're delighted that we really get people in their room together. This is really strange looking at people's faces and stuff as well. And it, it's a pity you can't be here, but your presence is more than we're more than happy that you're here. So look, today is a review discussion. We're going to talk about some of the main themes that we had coming up during the the Good Relations or during the Forward Together podcast. But it's an event for Good Relations Week. This is our contribution towards Good Relations Week this year. Um, so. It's a nice way to round off Series 2, but it's also a way of us going, Good Relations Week is really important. Here's some of the work we've been doing during the year, and this is us now showcasing it, and thanks everybody for being involved. So, we have a number of themes that we were talking about uh, that came up through the podcast. Paul, me and you had a wee chat at the end of the last episode about, about some of them. So, I'm going to start by asking Kevin, who is off camera, to play the first selection and it's a, a snippet of some of our interviews that Paul did and this this snippet focuses on the need for structural change in Northern Ireland. Go for it there. Now the other thing you said in terms of uh, talking about buttressing the institutions is giving greater strength and power to the assembly committees with taking more independent evidence but the problem with the committee structure is that it's composed for the in main part of the parties that are also in government so how do you get beyond that to, to give strength to the assembly's committees? Yeah absolutely as you say it's a very difficult um, situation in that a lot of well, now especially we're back to a, a five-party government. Most of those parties are, are in Stormont. And so there's a tendency to kind of see um, the Northern Ireland Assembly as an extension of the executive as opposed to a kind of check on it. When people talk about Stormont, they generally mean it means both things. It means both the Assembly um, and, and the executive. And so there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, to kind of allow the Assembly to uh, develop its own individual um, identity is kind of seen as, as a check and a scrutiny function rather than just um, a legislature in order just, just to pass that legislation that's needed. It, 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 all right, unemployment has fallen, sort of, unemployment is at a low level, so that that isn't the main. 
measure. It's in terms of productivity that Northern Ireland really um, is at the bottom of the scale. Um, and it reflects the fact that the educational attainment of the population in Northern Ireland is the lowest for any region in these islands. Um, uh, that that's, uh, Ireland, London and Scotland are at the top and Northern Ireland is at the bottom. And measuring both in terms of early school leavers, those who don't complete high school, and measured in terms of the portion of the population, especially the younger population who, are third, who have third-level qualifications, Northern Ireland is at the bottom on both of those measures. And that helps explain why the productivity performance is, is so poor. I, I have, and I suppose I, I come partly from a perspective of looking at what reconciliation is about, some of the criteria that have been set, and the best criteria that I've come across was used by the Peace Programme 10 years ago, Hamber and Kelly Reconciliation Criteria, which talked about, amongst other things, uh, in order to resolve conflict and promote reconciliation, you need to go back and make the structural changes to the structures that have created segregation of the conflict to start with. And whenever I, I look at that, I, I particularly look at how we've lived in a very segregated society for probably close on 200 years. And therefore, there, there, there is a requirement, there's a real need to make the structural change uh, around education and around how uh, children and young people are brought up. Um, because at the end of the day, it's about relationship and relationship dismantles prejudice. And if you have people from different backgrounds in the same classroom together, uh, then they will uh, emerge as uh, young adults with a much differently shaped attitude to the other uh, than we're currently doing. I, I think the, we need to, uh, in the sense of making the structural changes that give rise to the conflict, we need to tackle the, the causes of the problem, not deal with the symptoms. The cause of the problem here is about segregation, that leads to symptoms like sectarianism and all of the other stuff that we see in our everyday lives very often. So it is really important to make those structural changes. Who you heard from there were T.S. Um, Sargent from the Institute for Government, uh, there was John Fitzgerald, a well-known economist, writes for the Irish Times, and Peter Osborne, former chair of the Community Relations Council. So Anne, I'll go to you first, and uh, I'll give you the easy one to start with. Um, so how is it, if we're talking about systemic change, and that's something that I think a number of the contributors to our podcast said, this is what we need. How do we create systemic change whenever the system is set up to nearly maintain the status quo? So there's a starter for Tim. So, Jared, the thing I'd say about this is that um, structures are important and systems are important, but really culture is the key thing. So you can argue about um, making structural changes and how that might make government work better in Northern Ireland. but. Actually, if you haven't improved the culture and the way people work together, then you're not really going to make much difference in changing the structures. So um, one of the things Pivotal's done during our first year is we, we did a report about how government works in Northern Ireland, which we published back in March. So that looked at the executive's record in providing government for Northern Ireland. And overall, its conclusion was that you know, the, the executive's record during during the years that it was in place, so not looking at the three years when it wasn't there, but you know, during during the time it was in place, its its record in providing government was was, was pretty poor. 
Um, and overall, our conclusion there was that there was, needs to be a culture change in how government works and how politics works. And one, one big thing in that was about the need for more of a common purpose um, in what the government's doing. So uh, a need for a more united set of, of goals that, that the government's working towards. And previously, the executive did have a, a programme for government which set out what those goals were, and those were things which were meant to be related, relatable to people's everyday lives. So it was about you know, um, improvements in the economy, more opportunities for people, improvements in education and health and so on. So that programme for government previously set out what the executive together was going to achieve, but we don't have one of those at the minute. Um, the executive came back in January, there was the publication of New Decade, New Approach, and there was a commitment there to getting putting in place a programme for government really, really quickly, but that hasn't happened. And so at the minute, we don't even have a clear view about what the what, what the executive is working towards. So I think that's a real priority to get to get that in place so that at least we know what the, the, the common goals are for the executive. Um, I think if we reflect on the, the COVID period, which is obviously one of the reasons there isn't a programme for government is that there's that COVID has been really all consuming over recent months, months. But it's just interesting to see how on the whole the executive has worked well during that period in because it has had this common goal of tackling COVID, of protecting public health and um, maintaining economic activity and, and maintaining people's livelihoods at the same time. Uh, so it has had that common goal and, and there's been, I think, quite a bit that's been positive about how the executive has worked in recent months. There's some big significant exceptions to that, but I think there's been some encouraging signs about uh, ministers leading their departments well and working well across different departments and overall there being a, a unity of purpose. Um, but overall I'd be saying uh, I think there's a need for culture change, there's need, a need for unity of purpose, there's a need for more effective working across government departments, there's a need for long-term decision making as well um, and not just continuously battling the, the, the immediate issues, but a much more strategic look at long-term governance. So I think overall, I'd say culture is the key thing here, um, making government work better rather than necessarily focusing on structures. Brilliant. Paul, one of the changes or one of the challenges that it constantly hurt back to you as the economy and skills and stuff like that, can you see, is that going to be one of the areas where there are, there is a common goal? Is there, are the parties working together towards that? Or? I, I think Anne makes a very interesting point about culture or structure. And in a way, it's a, a false dichotomy. It's actually, they, they go together. And I think that point was made very well, effectively, by John Fitzgerald, where he is talking about the poor outcomes from large parts of the schooling system which then leads into a weak skill base and problems within the economy. And that problem comes from both culture and structure. And it comes from the fact that structurally we have a divided schooling system, by which I don't mean specifically Catholic and Protestant, but the fact that we have sec uh, selection at age 11. 
Uh, yet, despite that, and despite the evidence that John Fitzgerald's talking about, about the fact that we have a high dropout rate in particular about, amongst working class boys, we have some politicians that repeatedly say Northern Ireland has the best education system in the world, mm. which is true for a narrow group of people who are largely kids from working, uh, from, uh, from, sorry, affluent family backgrounds. So that is a structural problem, but it's a structural problem that originates from a cultural problem of denying that we've got a problem, and that leads into systemic economic difficulties because we haven't got the skills, we don't have the qualifications, we don't have the productivity. All these things come together, I think. Okay. What about the, on the parties, Paul, just to come back and clarify this a wee bit? There's a common goal thing. I don't think all the parties are working towards a common goal. You know, it's like some are trying to do away with Northern Ireland as an entity. You know, that surely can't help either. Yeah, and, and beyond that, I mean, you're quite right, of course. I mean, it, it, and, and Anne is right that there was a common goal in terms of COVID because you've got two clear outcomes. The first is to minimise health problems and deaths arising from COVID. And secondly, to minimise the economic damage. And you don't need to get into either the constitutional arguments around that, apart from to on the edge about whether you align yourself with Great Britain or whether you align yourself, align yourself with Ireland. But it's not, that doesn't have to be a big difference. And the second thing is you don't have to deal with the, the structural objectives of whether you achieve a more egalitarian economy. So you don't have those big divisions in policy outlook arising out of COVID-19. But fundamentally, apart from the constitutional issue, if you look at the major parties, they still have very different objectives in terms of where they want us to get to, mm. about whether you want to have a more equalised society, to what extent you deal with the social problems that are actually pretty stark in our society, but which we don't really talk very much about. Okay. Siobhan. One of those social problems, if you like, the suicide in particular and the mental health challenges that we're facing. And your experience now as uh, the mental health champion for Northern Ireland, do you see that there is that shared vision or shared objectives, if you like, particularly on that issue that you're, that you're working on? Um, yes, yes. I, since I came into post on the 10th of, of August, I, I certainly have had the support from all the departments and all all of the, the different political parties have been very openly warm and supportive. Um, so so I, I've seen a different side to things. I would actually conceptualise the divisions that, that are existent in Northern Ireland as one of fear, fear of the other, and that's related to our history of trauma. Um, and it's been exploited in different ways by political parties who have particular agendas there. Um, and, and I agree that integrated education, education, educating kids together is the first step towards breaking that down. But while you have communities with, with that, um, with a history of violence and, and they've witnessed huge amounts of trauma and it's still being discussed in those communities and we still haven't found a way of, um, of telling our stories. Um, so that, that we're not othering or we're not creating that fear. So that underlying fear is still there. But but um, uh, but certainly, yeah, all of the departments want to address mental health. They've all paid for for this post, so it's not a it's not under the Department of Health, and uh, they all want a piece of it as well. They all see how they would have a role, or most of them see how they would have a role in promoting mental health and well-being and resilience. 
um, and tackling the issue of suicide and mental illness as well. And I think another issue that, that's actually going to be coming to the fore a lot in the next few months is around drug use and substance use um, and the deaths there because that's another problem that that is not um, it, it's not emphasised frequently enough and it's a huge difficulty here um, and a lot of those deaths will be drug overdose deaths for example um, so that's something we need to, we need to tackle mm. as well and that's something I think we're not having the conversation about we're having the conversation about mental health and mental illness and treating mental illness but where people um, approach services with very complex trauma related mental health problems and they're using substances we still haven't found a way to support them a way of giving them the treatments uh, and indeed there's some very stigmatizing conversation that continues to happen um, for, on, on that issue and really we need to understand addiction is something that emerges uh, out of trauma and fear and harm reduction is, is the only way forward there but that's a conversation we, we have yet to have I think yeah that's something that came up, I think, there's a couple of other contributors, particularly Anne McBride was talking about this, and for victims, it's how they cope as they drink or they take drugs or whatever as well, so I, that's come up a few times. And I want to ask you again um, about change and about the pace of change. Um, we know Good Friday Agreement, or Belfast Agreement, whatever people want to call that, was signed in 1998, and people were expecting to see big changes since then. And that hasn't happened. In fact, the lot for a lot of people here hasn't changed a lot at all. In fact, it might have got worse in many instances. What can we expect? What's, what's reasonable if we're saying, right, this is now the new starting point and we're going to commit to this and we will have a program for government or whatever it is that we're working to, together um, to achieve? What's realistic? What can we expect? Because so, I think part of the, the issues that we people might have with the executive and the assembly and others are the unrealistic expectation? Um, I think one thing that's really surprising in Northern Ireland is how we accept really poor outcomes from our public services and we don't seem to challenge politicians very much about that. I suppose that's maybe partly because there's such a focus on identity and um, cultural issues here and on the constitutional status but I find it really shocking that there are 136,000 people on a health waiting list here who are, who've been waiting for more than a year. That's 136,000 people waiting more than a year for a first um, referral to, to a consultant, you know, so they've been referred by their GP. And, you know, that's an astonishing number. That's 8% of, of the Northern Ireland population. Um, if you compare that to what's happening in England, Scotland and Wales, the numbers there are massively lower despite the populations being much bigger, but somehow we, we tolerate that. We tolerate um, significant inequalities in our education system. And I think Paul mentioned that just in, in his answer, that we have politicians who'll say that we have an excellent education system. Um, well, we have an education system that has some excellence within it, but we also have a system that is, is very unequal and the outcomes that young people achieve are hugely dependent on their social background so you know our, our education may be doing well by some some young people but for a lot it's it, it's failing them and we're and we're we're tolerating that um so i think in lots of areas we we accept really poor outcomes here and i i i think we should be much more challenging to our politicians um 
leaders and uh, uh, public servants about, about, about that situation. Another example is the, the lack of a climate change strategy in Northern Ireland. Um, there's no strategy in place. One has been promised in New Decade, New Approach, so you know, we hope it's, it's forthcoming. But even just in the last few days, there's been new data released about the decline in biodiversity in Northern Ireland, um, and we don't seem to have a strategy in place to address that. So I think we need to be more challenging to politicians. Again, um, as I said in my previous answer, we need a, a programme for government that tells us what, what collectively the executive are seeking to do. And we need, um, we need that programme for government to be really ambitious uh, because there's serious issues in public services, in health, in education, in infrastructure, public transport, climate change. Um, we, we need ambition that, that these things should be better and that they can be better. We need to see action plans put in place about how these things are going to be addressed. And at the minute, we have uh, really a, a very ambitious set of commitments in New Decade Near Approach from January, but no idea about when those are going to be delivered, if they're going to be delivered, how they're going to be delivered, and where the funding to do that would come from. So overall, I'd say we shouldn't just be accepting things as they are. We shouldn't just be accepting that um, that's the way it is in Northern Ireland. We should be expecting better and challenging our politicians about that. Gerard, I, I think what Anne is saying connects directly with what Siobhan has said, mm. which is that you have this odd result, if you look at the surveys, that Northern Ireland is the happiest place in the United Kingdom, according to people's opinion of how they feel, yet we have the highest levels of mental ill health and suicide. And in fact, I think that connects to what Anne's talking about, about the, the acceptance of the unacceptable. I mean, when I first came over from England 20 years ago, I was amazed that there wasn't levels of anger about certain things within Northern Ireland life. For example, the fact that you've got open spaces that should be beautiful that were instead cluttered and ugly. And there were just things where you thought people wouldn't put up with that in England. And I think there is still this sense of, thank God we're not at conflict. And yeah. therefore, let's not rock the boat too much. But actually that leads to suppressed unhappiness. And, and that explains why apparently we're happy, i.e. we're happy we're not killing each other, but we're not actually happy in ourselves, in the way we live our lives, and there's so many things that we put up with that actually we should be demanding changeover. Aye. The sure it'll be grand approach, it seems to be the way of it. Is that the peculiarity as well, Paul, of the, the system? You know, the fact that there's five parties sitting around the executive table and if one pushes one too far, that's going to have other ramifications than simply not getting stuff done. The whole thing might collapse. You know, it certainly reduces or eliminates accountability. Yeah, I mean, because who do you change? Who do you vote for to get change? Aye. Well, there's a whole conversation about <laughs> are we actually voting for change or are we voting on <laughs> constitutional issues every time? That that that's another of the the the, the questions. Um, I do think, though, when we talk about being happy with mediocrity, I'm experiencing a lot, of, encountering a lot of anger out there in particular communities mm. that has been suppressed and they, they previously have nowhere, had nowhere to communicate or nobody was listening to them. And, and I think the, the idea of a mental health champion is 
um, in some way to try and manage that and to deal with that because it emerges in the most unlikely scenarios and disrupts other things and it does need to be managed but there is an awful lot of anger out there and you see it right now um, where people are using mental health and suicide as um, you, you know as, as a way of, of kind of addressing their their frustration um, around the the pandemic measures at the minute, so there there is a lot of anger. It's just it's just not channel, channeled or mobilised in the way that you might see it in other places. And mm. it's it's the um, the divisions, you know, it's limited to particular areas, let's say, and it, it's characterised as something that's a feature of of deprived areas therefore we don't need to do anything about it you know and, and that's uh-huh. that, that's what's it's kind of really upsetting when you see it is that people don't feel that their voices are heard and yet the inequalities are huge and we do need to address them and of course that feeds into the voting statistics where actually you have less than half of adults who could be allowed to vote that actually do vote and that is a terrible problem. We, we laugh at the United States system with the low voter turnout, but actually we've got a very similar situation in Northern Ireland. Okay. Well, one of the other themes that we came across was the need, and I know Anne will be happy to talk about this as well, about evidence-based um, decision-making here. And I suppose that's what some of might be fueling some of the anger, is maybe that evidence hasn't been captured yet to allow us to make the decisions. So we're going to hear a few snippets. It's a wee bit longer this time around. There's just over six minutes of stuff here. And I'm going to introduce it properly. I'm going to tell you who we're going to hear from. We're going to hear again from Jess Sargent from the Institute for Government. We'll hear from Deirdre Heenan from Ulster University, your colleague, uh, who's a real interest in social care. We'll hear from Seamus McGuinness from the ESRI and yourself, Anne, um, from Pivotal. So, Kevin, do you want to play away there? to me that health and social care which are huge parts of uh, life in Northern Ireland uh, affect so many people in terms of workforce in terms of our lives our quality of lives that there is so little evidence detailed research so that when people go to make assertions to say well look this is working somewhere else have a look at what happens in Sweden have a look at what happens in France 
the difficulty is you are actually very limited because you can't produce the evidence to support the argument. And I but there are these fundamental underlying differences um, that drive lower productivity in the north. And we, we pointed to some of those uh, in our study. Um, the, 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 the first relates to um, human capital areas. And so we see that levels of educational uh, attainment in the north are really um, lagging uh, other British regions and uh, the Republic of Ireland. And I have to say, this was something that actually was a shock uh, to me as someone who works in the Republic and is domiciled in the North when I looked at the data. Um, so, for instance, compared to Great Britain in 2015, uh, Northern Ireland had the highest share uh, of people with the lowest levels of educational attainment and the lowest share of graduates. And the gap between um, Northern Ireland and the Republic was even more pronounced in 2015. So in that year, over 35% of young people in Northern Ireland, uh, age 24 to 30, were educated to two lowest levels uh, of, of educational attainment, that's primary or, or so or secondary level, not compared to just 11% in the Republic. At the other end of the spectrum, we see that uh, just under 40% of young people in the North were educated to the two highest levels of attainment compared to or over 60% in the Republic. So that's a key aspect. There's also differences in terms of the structure of the Irish economy and, and the, the economy of Northern Ireland, for example, in terms of exports and the uh, value of exports to the Northern Ireland economy, it's around 15%. It rises to 35% if we conclude external sales to GB. It's 54% in the Republic. There's also differences in the uh, productivity levels of, of, of what is being produced. So um, the export sector in the Republic is much more highly value added relative to uh, the North. And then another key difference between both uh, economies is the role of foreign direct investment. The Republic is much more FDI intensive and also the level of productivity associated with the FDI that goes into the Republic uh, is much higher than in the North. And again, that's been a key driver along with the export orientation uh, of the, the high growth rates that has been seen in the Republic. So it looked at uh, the economy, health and social care, education, poverty and disadvantage, climate and biodiversity, and community relations. And just in a, in a quite a straightforward, simple analysis of data that was already published, we um, concluded that really Northern Ireland is not in the place where we would want to be. Um, our indicators and our outcomes are poor in many areas. Um, and also, I think a really significant finding was that we're not on track for the future either. You know, we're, we're, not, we're not heading in the right direction and really significant and urgent policy changes needed. And that, that was published in November, so that was when the Assembly was uh, still not in place. And so really it was quite a stark message to um, to politicians and public, the public and anyone else uh, reading the report that we needed urgent action, we needed urgent change to get policy on track. Um, the particular uh, waiting list data you, were, you, you mentioned there, Paul, was um, looking at people who had waited more than a year for planned care in Northern Ireland. And really, we found that, um, again, using published data, so this is already data, data that was already out in the public domain, but I suppose maybe the way we presented it uh, just brought the point home. Um, but, you know, in Northern Ireland, uh, last no so last November, so the data will have changed slightly now, and of course will have changed again because of the current COVID-19 situation. But 
back in November, there were 120,000 people in Northern Ireland waiting more than a year on a health waiting list for planned care. And that compared to only 1,100 people in England waiting more, waiting more than a year. So. Okay. And that, that was yourself that you just heard winding up our, our, our wee snippets there. And keen to ask you, what was the response to your report? Did it go down well? Have you seen change? Are, are we more open for the data-driven conversation yet? I think people welcome Pivotal as an independent policy voice, uh, as, a, a, as a new organisation coming along talking about public policy, but without a political agenda. So um, Pivotal is, is, is politically independent and we're, we're also independent of the government. So we're not pursuing, uh, we're, not, we're not pursuing any political agenda. We're not aligned to any political party. Uh, I, I think that's been welcomed. Um, there's no broad ranging, cross-cutting policy voice in Northern Ireland. And um, there's obviously lots of um, there's lots of groups operating outside of government representing particular groups, you know, whether that's business groups or voluntary sector groups or um, uh, working with children and young people or whatever it is, but there's, there, isn't a, a, there isn't a cross-cutting public policy voice. So I think Pivotal's being welcomed in that sense. And, and it ha it's odd, I think, in Northern Ireland compared to, you know, if you look to London or Dublin or Edinburgh, there's, there's think tanks all over the place, you know, think tanks are a normal part of public policy debate, but they've been largely absent in Northern Ireland. So I think Pivotal's been welcomed as well. To be honest, I think to an extent, people don't really know what we're for. And that's my job to, to show people what we're for and to, to do good work that's helpful and demonstrates how we can add value. And um, maybe because there's been a bit of a monopoly on, on policy making by the politicians and the civil servants. They don't quite know what think tanks can add, but we're trying to create a space for more debate, not, not just for ourselves, obviously, but for, for other people as well, whether that's, um, whether that's uh, academics or um, interest groups or just members of the public. We want more people to be, to be talking about public policy and not necessarily in a, in a, in a political way. Um, you mentioned data in particular, I think, um, you know, I've always believed in the real value of uh, data and of transparency about data and about publishing data. And I think increasingly, um, as technology develops, more people are able to use data sets and analyze things and do their own do their own work to look into particular in interests that they have. And so I am all for more data being released and greater scrutiny of it, because I think data tells you uh, to tell you what the actual reality of a situation is, hopefully, and um, you know if you're analysing data over time, you can see how that's improving or not improving. So, I'm all for publishing the data and enabling scrutiny, um, and and that's part of what we're trying to do at Pivotal is is getting more information into the public domain, um, using evidence and looking at what works in policy terms and making recommendations about that. Okay, we heard there, Paul from Seamus McGuinness from ASRI whenever uh, from the interview that you had with him and I was remembering from that conversation he was saying there's hundreds of economists and researchers based on the ASRI and there might be 10 maybe 
and the, the equivalent and the north are within various government departments. It seems that we haven't yet decided or made the leap to be data driven, if you like. It goes back to what Anne said earlier about the cultural challenges of Northern Ireland. And one of the cultural challenges here is the lack of challenge. There is this sense that, and you could see this as one of the reasons why the renewable heat incentive was such a big problem for the Northern Ireland Civil Service, was the lack of challenge. There was a policy that was adopted that did not have enough challenge scrutiny within the Northern Ireland Assembly, that there was a structure where there was a resistance to people questioning each other. And I think this is a cultural problem that applies across the public sector in Northern Ireland. It's the lack of challenge. And that relates to another endemic problem, which is the lack of diversity. The Northern Ireland Civil Service at its top level is drawn from a narrow part of our society. It doesn't have enough women in it, it doesn't have very many people from outside Northern Ireland, and it doesn't have a difference in attitude and background in terms of the decision making. And you could see that coming through, that decisions were taken with the renewable heat incentive that should never have been taken. And I think that shows the type of change that we need to make. Okay. Very aware of the community and voluntary organisations that are really prominent, in particular in the mental health push. There's the CCAS service, for example, is based here from our building, and we're delighted that it is. But I think it, it, you were able to make a real difference for the case if, when you started making the be able to quote the statistics and they say, "Here's what the data actually is," because you did the research. Yeah, I mean, the, the data and the evidence is absolutely crucial, and it is certainly lacking from, for mental health services generally. We don't have outcomes data. They're measured in different ways across the different trusts, which is a problem. When we're trying to do something like the Regional Zero Suicide Initiative, which is a data-driven quality improvement programme, we don't have data on suicidal thoughts and behaviours. It's not collected. We don't have data on suicide prevention interventions. So we need to know if we're going to try and change something, we need to be measuring outcomes that are relevant to that mm. because simply treating depression doesn't work. So data, data is so crucial. With the Community Crisis Intervention Service, the difficulty we had was the lack of um, health economists' expertise, mental health economists' expertise in Northern Ireland, and the lack of um, health economics data in, in relation to services here. So we weren't able to adequately put together an economic argument for that service. And mm. that was what was required. And actually, it was really difficult as an academic to even support the researchers to make that argument because we were extrapolating based on figures that were plucked out of the air. And we were really uncomfortable with that. And yet that was what was required. Um, and I'm finding that data is, has become a huge part of my role, actually. It's one of my key projects that I'll be presenting to the executive is what, what data are we collecting um, so that we, when we start to see the change, that we can measure that change. Because a lot of the kickback in terms of the mental health champion role, I mean, it's been mostly welcome, but there have been some, um, you know, some, some very vocal commentators have, have been saying that, that actually we just need more services. Um, and they don't see the value in these sorts of um, roles where, where we look at what the evidence is. Uh, and, and in terms of mental health, and you look at the data on waiting lists for, men for mental health treatments, um, and for, for example, child and adolescent mental health services, you know, it's a workforce planning issue, actually. 
even if we had a load of money to put into those services, um, even take the regional trauma network, we don't have people trained up to the right level. So that's why we need a 10-year strategy. That's why we need somebody like me or somebody with academic um, expertise to come in and to actually look at what the evidence says works and then to start to build that over a 10-year process but also to talk to people on the ground to make sure that their views and experiences are are heard as well so the issue the issue about data is ab absolutely crucial but getting that message across to the public that this is a worthwhile endeavor is, is very difficult until you're looking for funding for a service and then you need the data and it's just not there and in other elements of healthcare, the, the interventions that you need are somewhat intuitive. For mental health, they're not. We're still learning about what works for all of the different issues that we're talking about. The treatments are only just starting to become, um, you know, to be developed. We're, we're only starting to get the evidence there. Um, particularly around suicide prevention, things have shifted a lot recently in that area. So we need up-to-date evidence and we need to collect the data so we know how well we're doing. Yeah. Paul, is it a challenge, um, and Anne referred to it a wee bit as well, around the culture of the, the civil, civil servants, if you like, where no matter what data we throw at them, it's the interpretation of the data and the, the risk-averse nature that they s seem to hold um, needs a challenge as well? Well, there's also the issue, I mean, we're sitting here in Derry, and there's a feeling in Derry that everything goes to Belfast and very little goes to Derry. And in a sense, that's because if you do a simplistic analysis of cost-benefit, then you're always going to say that the easy wins go, come from expanding what already works rather than bringing up to the same level yeah. the places that are the weakest. So you've got certain problems about how you use data as well as having the data. The other problem is that some decisions need to be counterintuitive. So Siobhan's talked about mental health, but you've got a problem that we need to reform the health service. And there's an awful lot of resistance within the broader public community because the obvious thing is you need more hospitals. But actually, that's not what you need. You need excellence within the hospitals that you have. Mm -hmm. And you get more excellence by having more specialisms, by having fewer hospitals with better services, rather than putting the money into more buildings in more localised areas. But that is counterintuitive and gets resistance. So you need to have the ability to explain what the evidence means. Yeah. But you also need the data there to demonstrate the examples around the world that actually if you have more specialisms, fewer buildings, you get better outcomes. Because who wants to have a five minute drive to the local hospital to visit someone who's dying when you could have a hospital uh, half an hour away and your relative lives? Yeah, okay, brilliant. Right, I think we want to move us on from evidence-driven stuff. Uh, I think one of the things, this is Community Relations Week, and, and we have to talk about it, and it came up, I think, in every conversation that you had anyway, Paul, but there's a few old certainties here that you can rely on about segregation and sectarianism and dealing with the past and moving us forward together that I think we, we, we just need to reflect on and have a conversation about. So we've again pulled together a wee snippet, and this is slightly longer, this one, this is nearly seven minutes long, but we'll hear from, uh, and the following order, we'll hear Siobhan O'Neill, even though she's in the room, she didn't ask her to quote verbatim, um, Daniel Holder from the Committee for Administration of Justice, Colin Harvey from Queen's University, Will Glendinning, uh, former Chief Executive of the Community Relations Council, and Dennis Bradley, known for many things, including his work on the consultative group on the past.
Now, you've spoken at some length, Siobhan, about the context of Northern Ireland uh, in terms of where we are in terms of mental health. I mean, can, can you put a bit of context on this? I mean, clearly we've got mental health problems in Northern Ireland, but clearly there are global problems on mental health. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing a rise in mental health problems in the Western world. Um, so we know that around one in four or one in five people in in Europe or in the West would have a mental health problem. In Northern Ireland, that's uh, somewhat higher. Um, our research actually showed in 2008 around 39% of the population had met the criteria for a mental illness at some point in their lifespan, and that includes mild mental illnesses as well as serious mental illnesses. Um, so in Northern Ireland, we know we, we have more mental illness than other places. And when we look at the research evidence from the World Mental Health Surveys and other studies, we can see there that the trauma of the troubles seems to have had an impact on the population that has led to that, that differential, that, that, that increased rate here compared to other places. To what extent can we objectively define justice? Well, that's the whole point of human rights law. The whole point of human rights law, which isn't designed for here, obviously, it's designed for, for everywhere, is to have an objective framework whereby everyone is equal before the law and laws themselves, when passed by national or regional governments or whatever, have to reach certain standards so that they're actually uh, uh, objective and fair. And this isn't a question of sort of different identities having different interpretations, really. This is really a question of... Um, I suppose it's a question of abuse of power in the past when the legal framework uh, A, contained a lot of laws that were partisan and unfair, but B, also wasn't applied to everyone equally. And that has been essentially the, <laughs> without overusing the word, the legacy of legacy issues that we're dealing with. But in terms of what justice is meant to mean, um, I mean, there are dozens of international human rights standards that set out, uh, or it's a developing body of law, what that should mean both in a general context but also in a, in a legacy context where there is recognition that there is a difference in the situation and there's, justice is often seen as one of three strands with dealing with either, a, I suppose, what you could call a post-conflict society, perhaps we'd be better off calling ourselves a society emerging for, from conflict, um, justice is one strand of how you can deal with, with legacy alongside truth, but also, very importantly, guarantees of non-recurrence. If we're talking about a, a conversation about the, the here and the now and in the future, I think, first of all, it's important that human rights feature centrally in, in the discussion, both about you know, the, the future of the island of Ireland, but also in the, in, in the here and now. And I think there's a real risk that if those working in the areas of human rights and equality and social justice, you know, d don't engage in the conversation about the constitutional future, there's a real risk of being excluded from that. I think a big issue at the moment in relation to, you know, the island, north and south, is socioeconomic rights. You know, if you look at what's driving politics on both bits of the island now, I think it's real concerns about issues of healthcare, and housing and sort of basic social and economic rights and I think you know there's a real chance here to try to make sure that socioeconomic rights on the island are no longer second-class rights both now and in the future. I think we need to look at uh, ways that, 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 that we do that in order um, uh, b before we actually come to a point of a referendum. I think we need to um, have the discussion about 
what the new Ireland would look like and have discussion uh, in the same way as the uh, in the Republic those discussions took place over the um, same-sex marriage referendum and over the divorce referendum, particularly over, sorry, not the divorce referendum, the abortion referendum, particularly over the abortion referendum, uh, where there developed a consensus across the island about what was what was on offer, and that only then do you reach the position of having a referendum on any future. So, in other words, you know what is possible. Um, and, but I think also from a unionist point of view that uh, it needs to be recognized for unionists to enter into those conversations. They need to, it needs to be recognized that they are entering into them um, in a position where they, can, where they can come out the other end and say, no. Um, if they go in knowing that they're going to lose and whether it's 5-0 or 3-2 is not a way for those conversations to take place. Recently, I described it as that the past was always very mucky ground, but it has now turned itself into a swamp. And partly the reason why it's turned it into a swamp is that some of those groups, the local political parties and some of the victim groups, need to take a little bit of responsibility for actually being incapable of allowing an overarching, uh, comprehensive approach to be taken uh, for their various reasons. Um, so it is not just the British government who are who have responsibility, in my opinion, for creating the swamp, and it's not just the Irish government who are responsible for creating the swamp, but it is all those groupings who are responsible for the, for, for creating the swamp, which is now incredibly difficult, in my opinion, to deal with. The second thing, or the other thing, I would say about that uh, is that the people who have needs. Uh, within this are not just the political parties and not just the victims. Society has needs. Uh, society's need to move on is needs to be taken into account, needs to be acknowledged and taken into account. Uh, and if the victims and if the political parties here cannot agree, then, you know, society has the right to say, well, We'll do what we think is we'll do what we think that which is right and which is its, has, a, has justice at its core. But if you refuse and keep refusing that, then society has the right to move on and past this. It cannot be bogged down in this swamp forever, or what has become this swamp. Okay, and I'll go to yourself first. I know you're not mad, King. You're trying to maintain the, the balance of Pivotal as a, a non-party aligned organisation. Um, but you do recognise that community relations impacts on all the policy decisions here. And, and is there a way, or are there any quick ones that you can see in this regard that kind of move beyond the, the politics that allow us to have conversations that might enable us to deal with the past or to deal with the contentious issues? So, um, yeah, so Pivotal doesn't take a view on the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. So we're, we're focused on what we would call economic and social issues and the issues that impact on people's day to day lives, you know, whether that's economic opportunities or um, education, uh, the environment, infrastructure and so on. So the reason we, we don't take a view on the constitutional status is, is it's not because we think it's not important. Obviously, it's very important, but there's a lot of debate about it already, and our view would be that the 
public discourse in Northern Ireland is, is overly dominated by issues about culture and identity and the constitutional status and that there's then a gap where we don't talk enough about the, the day-to-day issues of skills and opportunities and health and so on. And so we're, we want Pivotal to move into, into that gap. And, and as I mentioned before, we're, we're um, very clear about a, our political independence. I mean, in terms of op- opportunities, I would go back to the sort of things Paul was talking about in a previous answer about thinking about economic opportunities and thinking about helping young people get the, the skills that they need to take up jobs um, and to, to uh, take up opportunities that are, that are fulfilling for them. Uh, you know, enabling them to get training and earn a living and build a life for themselves. I think when you haven't got a system which helps young people take up those opportunities, then you're risking people becoming disaffected, alienated and fueling resentment. So I'd be focusing on those economic opportunities and thinking about, you know, even going back to what happens in early years, how how are we uh, investing in children even before they go to school. All the evidence shows you that if you want to tackle economic disadvantage, you need to start really early. Um, so how, how, are we doing that enough in Northern Ireland? Should we be doing it more? Um, I think we could be doing it much more to try and narrow the gap in outcomes for young people. Um, I think another really important stage is um, children in their teenage years when they're, they're thinking about options in school. Are we giving them good careers advice? Are we giving them options which are using the skills and talents they have, or are we pushing them into a really quite old-fashioned academic route? So trying to um, sustain young people in education and and help them towards uh, training and education that, that, that meets their needs and enables them to take up job opportunities later on. I mean, again, I was talking before about how we accept I think we accept really poor outcomes in Northern Ireland in all sorts of ways. I talked about health waiting lists and educational inequality. But I think also we accept really poor outcomes in terms of economic outcomes and we accept really high levels of poverty and inequality. And I think we should be challenging that and um, saying we should be investing much more in, you know, even going back to early years, but also throughout the education system to enable people to be to be well set up to take up opportunities later in life. Brilliant. Paul, I'm thinking of part of the earlier conversation. Um, is there a point at which we should be getting angry about these issues and about and calling people to account as well to say it's about time we started to address it? You know, we've been 20 years in government now, on and off. We need to start engaging on these difficult issues or we're going to we're never going to move on. Yeah, I, th- I think there is an understandable fear within Northern Ireland about being angry and expressing anger because look what happened in the past. But there is a legitimacy to being angry and it is finding the right way of expressing it and the right way of demanding change. Mm. Um, and I think that's really important. And I thought it was also very interesting when listening to Daniel Holder there where he was talking about are we a society that's post-conflict or a society that's emerging from conflict? because uh, we're working at the moment on a book emerging from the first series of these Mm -hmm. conversations. And within that first series, both Peter Osborne and also Simon Hamilton referred to the fact that we need to recognize that we're in halfway through a 50-year process of emerging from conflict. 
and don't expect too much too soon, but at the same time, demand change. So this is a 50-year process. We're halfway through, but actually we also need to recognize that the causes of the first conflict haven't gone away. Mm. We still have a very divided society, and that is not simply a sectarian division, it's also a class division. That actually, if we don't allow kids who happen to be born into poverty to emerge from that, to have good lives, good careers, then we are at risk of going back to the problems we had in the past. So, for example, we still have a problem that lots of kids from certain backgrounds come out of school with very weak qualifications, without the skills they need to have good lives, and that is true within loyalist areas and republican areas that you have paramilitaries that are able to recruit. We still have paramilitaries that are recruiting out of some communities, teenagers that stop basically engaging with school from the age of 13 or so. And I thought the most important message we've heard from Pivotal in all the reports they've been producing and research was to suggest that we need to have careers guidance in post-primary schools at key stage three in the early bit of post-primary because that's when you've got to say in particular to working class boys there is a route out of your family's poverty there is a route in towards having an ambition a good career structure and this is how you do it and unless we can engage kids at that point whether they are in loyalist communities and subject to UDA or UVF recruitment into drug gangs and paramilitaries or whether they can be recruited by some dissident Republican groups we have to give them the opportunity to emerge from that and have a good future and we're failing to do that at the moment okay Siobhan we need to show ambition and, and loads of things and I think dealing with the past is one of the things that we have to look at is there, is there appetite there in your understanding? Um, particularly, I know that there's a desire for this in communities. Is there the leadership capacity, if you like, there in your own opinion? Um, it, it's like, I'm, I'm, tr I'm struggling to say this, but I'm trying to place it in a context of everywhere in the world has gone a wee bit mad. And, and you know, if you look at most... Western democracies, they've all leaned very much to the right. Mm -hmm. um, governments are now quite happy to break their own, break agreements and break laws and lady left, right and centre. In this climate, are we in a position, given our background and what we're coming through and where we're coming out of, are we in a position to show leadership and to be generous with each other, I suppose is the question that I'm asking you. I think certain sections of Northern Ireland society are but in the areas where it's most needed, it's not happening. Um, and I, I would argue that the, the real pandemic, people talk about a pandemic of mental illness or whatever. Anxiety is actually the biggest mental health problem out there. And it is rife in deprived communities in Northern Ireland. And, and that constant fear and anxiety, and it emanates from transgenerational trauma as well. So living in adverse circumstances with a parent who's been traumatized will create a more anxious child. And, and it's just so impossible to see other people's perspectives when your body and your brain are sort of almost programmed in that state of fight or flight you're you're in a reactive state so peace building um negotiations the kind of skills that are required to move through and beyond the difficulties um, and to emerge from conflict we actually need people who are calm who are measured who are um, coming from within those communities who understand the issues 
and that that's not happening and that's why when Paul mentioned early years I, I, that is so so important that we get right in there and that we start working from the ground up there and developing community relationships family relationships so that we can build a generation of young people who are calm who understand their stress response who can manage their emotional regulation and who are in a position then to grow up to be peace builders to see other people's perspectives there's a real link between anxiety mental illness, emotional regulation and empathy, the capacity to see other people's, but we call it integrative complexity um, and it's an approach that we, we're now trying to use in a project that's funded through Peace Monies where we're, we're using interventions with young people to train them to see other people's perspectives to take a step back, to calm themselves down and to actually look at things from another, another perspective, a different position I think that's what we need if we're going to try and heal divided communities and truly emerge from conflict because ultimately the conflict's inside and if we're, if we're in a state of fear we will always be looking for who we should be attacking right now um, and we'll be trying to find out and work out who that is um, and we will find that other and, and go for it and it's, it's, we're not going to move beyond that. And it's so important that we recognise all of these biological and physical processes when we're having conversations about the constitutional questioning because these can be really triggering, genuinely triggering for people and can activate them and, and they, it's as almost as if they're personally threatened by that because of what they've experienced and what their family and community have experienced. So we need to acknowledge that and be so very careful. Um, yes, we can be angry and we can force conversations, but we ne always need to respect where that person's coming from. And I think as commentators, we, we need to be conscious of that ourselves and model that so that you know that it can happen throughout Northern Ireland and all the communities mm. that we're talking about. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah. It does. And, and Paul, I want to go back to you, Yona, because the modelling the conversation or the ability to hear something from another person's perspective I think is really important and a number of the conversations that you've been involved in, particularly the one around an all-Ireland approach, you know, you've, it's come up with many of the people that took part in the conversation. I appreciate Anne doesn't want to get on it, given her a role in Pivotal, but the, you know, we've, had, we've heard from unionists or people from a unionist background saying it might be time to start having the conversation, to start hearing the conversation let's have the conversation uh, so we don't repeat the mistakes of Brexit, that type of thing. Uh, let's have a data-driven conversation. So it was a bit of a, a gathering of some of the themes that we've talked about today. Um, how's that going to take place? What's the next steps? Um, I'm very conscious that, you know, there's a lot of stuff, there's stuff in the Irish Times over the last week or so where that conversation has been furthered. There's the 100-year anniversary of partition coming up next year. Um, how do we do this in a way where everybody's part of a conversation, no matter what the outcome of that conversation will be, but how do we do it in a way where we're not alienating each other? It, it, it is very difficult mm. because there is a lack of respect where there needs to be respect. You can't have a proper conversation, discussion with someone that you hold in contempt. And perhaps that's overstating the relationships, but there isn't that level of mutual respect. There isn't within government, there isn't within parts of our society. And we, there's another level of the fracturing within Northern Ireland society, which is that if you go to some parts of County Down and you go to some parts of County Tyrone, they are such very different communities on every possible level in terms of wealth, culture, work prospects. I mean, they're just 
very, very different places. That's like being in India or New York almost. You know, they're just incompatibly different places. And how do you build, bind the society together? And we actually do need to think more about healing the other divisions of our society because the society is not divided simply about whether we want to be an all-Ireland constitutional yeah. unit or whether we want to be aligned to the United Kingdom and part of the United Kingdom. It is a much more complex conversation. Yeah. And perhaps if we talk about more of those other differences, then that will enable us to deal better with the constitutional difference. Yeah, okay. Dead on. Let's finish by chatting about our next steps. Our next steps for Forward Together. You've redrafted a book based on the first series. Yes. So we're getting there. We're going to publish it. I hope. Yeah, so do I. <laughs> Once I read it, <laughs> don't fall out with me for not doing it yet. And, but we're about to have another series of conversations and another few podcasts coming out of that as well. Um, what's the main findings from series one, or the main thing that struck you? The, the 50 years, I think, is one of them. Mm -hmm. And also the fact that we haven't actually dealt with the causes of the first conflict. Yeah. Okay? So we, we had three and a half thousand deaths or whatever it was. And what were, we, what were people actually fighting over? And have those causes been resolved? Because we are fundamentally divided society within Northern Ireland. And we have very different types of communities. And we haven't... haven't bound together those differences. And those differences are much about the prospects you have at birth as they are about your constitutional outlook. Okay. Well, look, just to round it off, thank you, Paul. Thank you, Siobhan. And thank you, Jan. Uh, thank you very much, everybody, for taking part, and our massive audience that's in the room as well for coming along this evening. Uh, thanks to Kevin for taking the time to do all the technical stuff as well. And just to let you know, the media grant for the CRC opens, so you never know, me and Paul need to have a chat about Series 3. But other than that, thanks for everything, and we'll chat again soon. <laughs>